I don't know, man. I'm I'm 50 years old and I'm closing the bars almost every night. I don't know how I haven't just like dropped dead. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Another Bottle Down, and my name is Mark Rayshap. We originally broadcast on the airwaves in Austin, Texas on 91.7 FM. That's co-op radio. Really cool station. A lot of excellent shows, both music and news and public affairs. Uh, whether you're in Austin or beyond, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, and then we make this podcast with the great conversations with winemakers and wine personalities that uh, pass through the studios. So um, definitely make sure to subscribe in uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And I would really appreciate a, a rating, preferably a good rating. Um, and, and most of all, just want you to really enjoy the conversations that we have as much as I do. Really love meeting all of these wine people coming through Austin or sometimes I travel to them. On today's show, we get to know winemaker and uh, Oregon winery owner Barnaby Tuttle, and he is quite the character, uh, quite opinionated in a lot of different ways, And uh, but we, we have such great conversation about low alcohol, winemaking, cooler climate stuff, uh, even the intersection of uh, wine and the marijuana industry, which is now, uh, of course, legal in Oregon. So um, I'm going to just jump right in and, and, uh, and introduce Barnaby and his winery, Teutonic Wine Company. Um, so I hope you do enjoy. Barnaby Tuttle, welcome to Co-op Radio. This is KOOP 91.7 FM and co-op.org. Um, hey, welcome to the studio. I really look forward to, uh, to talking Oregon wine and, and Teutonic Wine Company. So you're the owner winemaker of Teutonic. I am. It's me and my wife, Olga. Um, we make the wine in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Tell us about it. There seems to be uh, an energy about Oregon wine, people who are really striving to dig into the terroir and highlight a certain style. Is that, is that right? Being in the industry, is there an excitement? Well, what, what are you guys doing? I, I, I think so. But there's, it's just like any, you know, whether, you know, you're talking about a music scene or an art scene, there's different motivations and different ideas about what wine should be. And I think Oregon being a younger wine region the last 50 years, there's still a lot of freedom, experimentation, we're all very close. We're in the game together. Yeah. Can you give us an, an example of, of, of that, um, you know, that, that, that experimentation? I've had a lot of Oregon winemakers recently on the show, and they all seem to have a different take of what they're excited about and where they want to push the bar. What is that for you? What, the bar that I want to push? Well, <laughs> um, we made a wine this year called Candied Mushroom, which was entirely betridicized. So it's a came in covered in a type of fungus. We crushed it. We soaked it on the fungus for four days, wow. pressed it off, and then we inoculated with wild, wild yeast. We do what we call pied de cuve, where you go to the vineyard and create your own yeast starter because we feel biology is part of terroir. And we stirred the leaves, and then we inoculated it with film yeast. I was essentially trying to make MSG out of grapes. I wanted something that was so savory, so rich, so dense with umami. And... I mean, is that the end game? No, but that's sort of 
an example of the experimentation that right. we're really enjoying. And and you're on the smaller side, a uh, couple, four or five thousand cases, so you can yeah, really... a little north of five, but okay. yes. And you can do you can you can do that, right? You can. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it, but there's always a chance I might lose my house. <laughs> Yeah, because just you and your wife, and you've got a small team, right? Yeah. What can you give us a kind of an overview of where you get grapes in in Oregon, and 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 you know just some of your impressions of the regions? Sure. Well, we farm two vineyards, one in Alsea, which is the only coastal vineyard in Oregon, and then we farm a vineyard in Wilsonville on an old gravel quarry. It's all rock. We planted it with a jackhammer. Wow. And then we source from about sixteen more. Majority Willamette Valley, we do work now with the Columbia Gorge, which is also a super cool vineyard site. Uh, with the vineyards I work with, they have to be cold, colder sites. Yeah. Because being Teutonic, Germanic-style wines, bright acidity, lower alcohol, also dry farmed. And, and I want to be careful that when I say this is what I do, sure. doesn't mean that I'm criticizing how somebody else does it. It's if you have a band... You have your sound, you know, you like your reverb your way, and that's an expression of who you are, but it's not a judgment on others. But for me, I'm against irrigation. I want deep roots, and I think think also from a sustainability factor, we shouldn't be using water when we don't have to. Yeah, how much of Oregon would you say is irrigated? And I'd like to dig into that because that's kind of a a really important thing for you. I'm going to speculate at this point, honestly, the Willamette Valley is less than 50%. It's really, I don't think it's necessary, but the Southern, Southern Oregon, right. um, Eastern Oregon, it's probably a, not a choice. You probably have to, it would, it would be like growing grapes here. Right. So in the, in like when you're in talking the Rogue Valley or the Umqua yeah. further South yeah. and, and since those are all irrigated, you don't really play with those vineyards, right? Okay. We actually do, <laughs> but it's not Teutonic, uh, my wife wanted to do a little side project, and it's called Boyar Wedding Feast. And we get fruit from the Rogue Valley, and it's a Basque-inspired wine thing. And, it, and to work with Tanat, there is no Tanat in the Willamette Valley. Right. So we got this fruit, but it's a totally, it's a, it's, its own entity. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Tanat in the Rogue Valley. I bet some people will yes. be surprised. Is that kind of the hot thing? And, and for folks who don't know no. the Rogue Valley, it's further south, and it's a little bit more of the, the California warmth there yeah to not is not a big or known thing i know of a few other people i think brianne day at daywines works with it um but our inspiration in the basque country like irligui in the the french side of the pyrenees it's the most important grape yeah and so that was the inspiration uh to not the word tannin is derived from it yeah it is the most tannic darkest most astringent red grape in the world and two years ago, we made white wine with it. <laughs> and did it have a hint of color, hint of tannin? Or? Not really. It's just slightly golden. And just to explain, most red grapes, the juice is clear. Right. So if you take the grapefruit and put it directly to the press, you can make a white wine. Most sparkling wine is made from, that's white, is made from red fruit. Right. But I don't know if anybody had ever made a white tanat before. <laughs> And it's rad. It is like Merceau on steroids. It's just just a pumping monstrosity. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's, um, and so Tanat is the only thing that you do in that other project or? uh... Actually, no, this, uh, we superseded it and did a Merlot this year. Yeah. And there's just three barrels of it. It's, you know, it's like being the Beach Boys, you know, I'm going to always, you know, earn my bread and butter by making German style wines. 
But, you know, maybe you want to have a side project where you don't have to sing about girls and cars. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. And you get to get to leash out a little bit and uh, and yeah, do that different genre. Yeah, that's important. And it's important for, for you coming from a music background. Music and wine is so interlaced, right? I think so. And I have to say, I, I, I don't know if I really I, I love music. I've attempted to play it. I don't think I have an ounce of talent. I'm definitely, um, I, I think I chose the right career. Right on. Yeah. Well, let's go back to Teutonic. And so we're focusing on the Willamette Valley, um, all dry farmed, meaning no irrigation. The roots go deep. What 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 else? Can you kind of elaborate what you see compared to other vineyards? Like What, what is the character that, that you get from that? Well, colder vineyard sites means longer, slower ripening. And I always talk about the sous vide. You know, when you cook slow and low, your food tends to have a lot more complexity. And I would say you can't really pinpoint a number, but I'm always one of the last people to pick. Working with colder vineyard sites, I hang a little bit more fruit. There's a little bit more water stress, and it buys me time. So there's times where I've picked Pinot Noir in November at lower lower bricks. Bricks is how we measure the sugar in the wine. So I guess in the end of that, you know, very simply, brighter acidity, lower alcohol, more mineral presence. Yeah. And that's, um, it seems to be like what a lot of winemakers are doing in Oregon as well. Um, although you, like you said, you get ends of both spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And so, so Pinot Noir is that, that was kind of what you got, you started and that's Oregon's, uh, you know, flagship grape, right? No, actually. Um, I mean, yes. So when I, you know, I come from a blue collar background and my revelation that first made me realize that wine wasn't a load of. I don't know. I can't say BS on the radio. Was, you can say BS. I could say BS. But um, they were blind tasting us. And I was a rank amateur. But they did something very clever. We couldn't see what we're drinking. There was no communication. It was three Pinot Noirs, one producer, one vintage, but three separate vineyards. And after we took the notes, the guy said the difference between those wines was only the vineyard site. And that's called terroir. And I'm like, are you tripping? This food can taste like where it's grown. And that was the number one. But then within a year, I become the wine buyer at the restaurant that made me take the classes. Yeah. And one day I need, I need to order some Riesling and a man named Evald Mosler came in the door, German importer, showed me 14 Mosel Rieslings. I flipped about every one. Put in a $1,200 order, and that was a while back. That would be like putting in a $2,000 order now. And came home and told my wife, Olga, I'm going to quit my job and learn to do that. So Riesling is my magic grape. Right, right. So, And, and that's infamous for expressing its sight. Yes. Can we talk about Riesling in Oregon? Uh, because it, it's, it, you know, it's not considered kind of the most um, well-known grape, but it, is, it, it expresses itself well, right? I think so. And I think Riesling is a grape for everybody, but certainly winemakers have a real soft spot for it. The problem with Riesling is people will have a bad experience. They'll buy something that's really cheap and it's really sweet and there's no acid and no character. And they think, okay, now I understand Riesling. I don't like it. But Riesling is a grape that has the greatest diversity from the driest, most like, wow, I need an oyster with that to being wines you can have with foie gras or with dessert and everywhere in between. They age, in my opinion, as good as any wine on the face of the earth. In fact, my favorite wine is an aged Riesling. 
when they get 40 or 50 years old, they get you get these flavors of hazelnut oil and attic-y and just these crazy perfumes. And there's there's nothing like it in the world. Yeah. Can you talk about that balance of sugar? Because I think that a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around that if they say, okay, I don't like sweet wine, um, you know, and then this Riesling, although everybody is freaking out about it and it's so good, uh, it still has that sweetness component. Talk, talk about the balance from your point of view. Well, I, I mean, first let's talk about the people, the brainwashed. And I was brainwashed. People... When they first started drinking wine, all of us, the first wines we had were wine coolers yeah. or something very sweet. And then we inevitably get criticized about it. So we associate sugar with bad wine. But people drink sweet cocktails, right. eat sweet chocolate. People do like sugar. But they need to be reminded, first of all, if it tastes good to you, it's good. Nothing can change that. Right. And good Rieslings that have sugar, we call it residual sugar, need to have acid. So you taste it, it kind of is soft and sweet when it approaches. And then the finish is very long, dry, lemony, and refreshing. And to me, that defines a good Riesling. Yeah. Yeah, it's that when that sweetness hangs over, right? And and your mouth is almost left like with a film on it. That's when it fails. That's when it fails. Yeah, yeah. How many, do you do just one Riesling or do you experiment with different plots? Oh, and- Lord, no. Let's see here. Um, <laughs> Last year, I made the candied mushroom. I also made, um, I don't know if people are familiar with Rauch beer. I made a Rauch or a smoked Riesling, in which was natural via forest fire. Ah. Um, so those two, uh, Crow Valley Riesling, uh, the Wallstrom Riesling, which is the one that's growing on the, uh, the, the old rock. mine. Yeah. And I know I'm leaving something out. Hopefully the <laughs> vineyard I left out is not offended. But I, I think all all told, I made five Rieslings last year. Yeah. And you won't be able to do the Rauch Riesling uh, every year, right? Hopefully not. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like doing it, but I don't want to see, you know, $100 million in fire damage. Right, right, right. Absolutely. What uh, another another grape that you do a lot with is Pinot Gris, and that's another one that can have uh, residual sugar as well, right? But what is Pinot Gris like? It it was one of the w- most widely planted grapes in the Willamette, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's absolutely true, and and I, I think a lot of these things, you know, I have to be careful, but and how I uh, you know say it, but I think that it could be with white wine a self fulfilling prophecy because the the money is in the Pinot Noir. So it gets the love in the vineyard. Right. It gets the most love in the cellar. And then people maybe, not always, because there's a lot of people, I could start listing off good Pinot Gris from the Valley. But I think there's also people that think, oh, we need to have like a real entry-level wine, something that's easy to say, easy to market. And that's damaged the reputation of Pinot. Pinot Gris is rad. I mean, it's I love that grape. Yeah. Um, and I'm not afraid to make it with residual sugar, but it needs to have the acid. And bone dry, it's great too. Yeah, and it has, I think one of the things that's really interesting that Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio, uh, same grape, although made in totally different styles, everybody thinks that it's just light and without texture, while that couldn't be further from the truth, right? You get this incredible texture from Pinot Gris. Oh, there's a richness about it and a complexity. I love when, I, when I'm doing tastings, and, and Riesling gets this too. People say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, just can I pass on those? I don't like those grapes. 
and, and I get kind of cocky and I say, no, you're going to, you're going to drink it and deal with it. And, it. and it's fun to say, you know, it doesn't happen every time, but when people do like, wow, I didn't realize I like that grape. And then, and then you feel good. Yeah. And you open people up and that's what wine is about. It's, it's experience, uh, it's about experiences and it's just about experiencing new things and linking yourself to the land. Right. Absolutely. There's so much going on in a bottle. It's not just the terroir. It's not just the land, the vinification. It's it's everything. If you're listening to somebody's album, that's who they are. So p- part of it is a struggle that I've been through for, you know, the last getting close to 20 years to make this what I've learned. So my politics, my philosophy, you know, my intensity, you know, my wife as well. It's my the people that help me make it, the farmers, it's all there. Right. It's a very human experience. Yeah. How how do you think your the way that you're thinking about things have changed from the beginning in 0304 or around 02 to to now? What have you were you doing things back then in a certain way and now you're like, you know, hey, I don't need to do that or I want to go in a different direction. Sure. Yeah. We're always changing and evolving. You know, if I could go back, I'd kick that guy's ass. Like I was an idiot. Um, farming has made, makes you a lot more humble. And I, I think as a person, I mean, we could talk about the winemaking, but all these things are really interconnected. And now I love what I do and I put myself into it completely, but I'm also backing off. It doesn't define me. And if you know, if you see me, you know, I'm drinking beer and I'm just, I'm just being me again. Yeah. You know, I found my way back to who I was when I was a blue collar worker. I still love the wine, but you know, it's a job. It can't be 100% of who you are all the time. And winemaking, sure, I've changed a lot. And I had a lot of ideas when I first started. And sometimes I was misinformed. And sometimes I've just learned better ways. And anything we do, we, you, you know, you tr- aspire to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's great. That's what I love about this show is I t- try to take stories about wine and extrapolate them to 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 everything, you know, to everything that we do and and using wine as a source of maybe something that is so pure and that mostly transparent. I know that there's a lot of non-transparent things, but it's much more so than clothing or, mm. you know, the food on the grocery store shelves for sure. Um, what you know, you mentioned drinking beer and 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 it takes a lot of beer to make wine, right? Uh, and Mexican food. And Mexican food, right? Yeah. And, and uh, oh man, uh, the, the, the tacos, uh, taco joints in wine country are always really well visited, right? Uh, town hall. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, you know, you do some other funky stuff I'm, I'm seeing here on your website. And if folks wanted to follow along, uh, TeutonicWines.com. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Barnaby Tuttle from uh, Teutonic Wines in Oregon. They make the wines in Portland. Uh, there's a tasting room there, and uh, you can even taste with the winemaker, uh, with Barnaby here when he's not traveling, three weeks on the road bringing his tuba along um so you can uh you can do you can do some fun interactive stuff um so we're really happy to have barnaby here in the in the co-op studios you do some sparkling wine right uh vintage permitting the one of the things about being a small winery and being the boss i had the opportunity to make the wine that should be made with the fruit and some years a pinot noir vineyard you look at the fruit you taste it and you see this is ideal for sparkling wine Maybe the next year it's rosé, and the year after that it's red wine. But 
it's always taking the ingredients and making the product that is the best expression of what you're given. Yeah. And so the last year we did a sparkling wine was 2013. So what made you say, okay, with this fruit, I'm going to do a sparkling wine? 17.5 grams of acid per liter told me that. Whoa. Um, yeah. I, we had never seen numbers like that. The, uh, let me put that, let's put that into perspective because that probably, that number means nothing to most, most listeners out there. 17 grams of acid when normally wine is probably anywhere from five to eight. Right. And it's probably more acidic than lemon juice. It was pretty wild. And most of the acid came from malic acid, which is the acid you associate with a green apple. And, and grapes are interesting. The primary acid of grapes is tartaric acid. And as far as I know, that's the only fruit that is defined by tartaric acid. Right. But the fruit flavors were great in this wine. The acid was off the Richter scale. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be sparkling wine. Yeah. And it's a great sparkling wine. And the shocking thing now is it's totally balanced. That's awesome. So did you think if most of it was malic acid, you could think maybe I'll put some of it through malolactic fermentation, which is lessens that acid. Exactly. Yeah. And that and malolactic acid softens the acid and it but it also provides texture. Yeah. And and it worked really well. But there was so much malic acid that not all of it fermented. It's I, I'd say eighty percent of it. Yeah, the, the bacteria yeah. just couldn't eat it yeah. all up, right? Wow, that's crazy. And then the fruit that you did from it was all, was that Pinot Noir or was that Gamay? It was, it was Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir. It was Pinot Noir. Yeah. Wow. That's so, that's so wild. I think Madeira is some of the highest acid I've seen. And that's only, I've seen that get up to 14 grams per liter. But that's crazy. Yeah, it was that, very crazy. That's awesome. And it's so cool that you could say, hey, I'm going to do this with it and not, you know, drop it or sell it to get blended back into other things, right? No, we, we, we chose the fruit. We picked it ourselves and uh, very happy with the results. Yeah, wow. Now, and um, so Pinot Noir on the reds, you do a bunch of whites. We talked about Riesling, Pinot Gris. What about Gamay? Gamay is what I'm hearing a lot of people really excited about. Oh, there's, there's outright warfare over <laughs> Gamay. People are planting it, but the older stuff, there's not enough. And I'm out of the Gamay game. I mean, I could save that for my friends who are really good people. And I could talk about, you know, Tom Monroe, Scott Frank, uh, Brienne Day, um, and they should get it because that defines who they are. And I was working with it, doing a project, which you can, I think you can still get. And I still make the project, but I just omitted the Gamay from it in the current vintage called 459 which is an historical wine. That was the last year the Romans occupied the Mosul Valley. It's an amphora wine. And then also the 1787, which is the last year the Mosul was all red wine. And in, in that historical chain, now we have a wine called 1908, which comes from an era where Mosul wine was made like white burgundy. So Riesling fruit, uh, bone dry, 100% ML, malolactic second fermentation, and then uh, spent 16 months in neutral oak barrels on the heavy lees. Yeah. Well, so it's so you're really tracking the history of the Mosul through through your wines. I, I think it makes gives me a more intimate relationship with the valley the more I know about it. And there's also an adventure to studying this history. We'll go to museums and I go from winemaker to winemaker interviewing, taking notes. And for the consumer, when we drink wine, if you're eating pasta and drinking Italian wine, 
you know, if you think about it, if you really appreciate, you're kind of in Italy. And I said, well, let's take it to the next level and recreate historical wines. And now you can have a, a feeling or impression of what that time was like. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. How, you enjoy going, do you go frequently to the Mosul? Uh, is, um, or, or, yeah. Not as often as I'd wish. Yeah. I love it. Salting in, in the middle of Mosul is my Palm Springs. I, I know I'd say at least half the village and it's a great time. And if anybody wants to do a really amazing trip to Europe, go to the middle Mosul. Yeah. It's very, it's very affordable. The scene scenery it's a miniature Grand Canyon covered in steep cliffs of grapes everywhere. The wine's spectacular. The food's great. People have a good sense of humor. Yeah. You could definitely tell it was Romanized at one time. I feel, although it's German, I feel as if I'm Northern Italy. Yeah, it's wild. And it's some of the steepest vineyards and terraces in the world. You've got the Doro and the Mosul and it's just wild, right? Oh, absolutely. It's dangerous. I mean, there's, I can tell some pretty dark stories of people getting hurt or worse. Right. Yeah. 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 And and those vineyard workers who farm those, I mean, it's a specialty. I mean, you, I, you know, sometimes I was just in the Doro and I, you know, started walking down a vineyard. I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> oh, and you can see it genetically in the people that live there. They've worked these steep vineyards all their lives. It, you might meet some middle-aged people or senior citizens and say, oh, yeah, you would you like to go on a hike? Well, first of all, it means a very different thing. A hike in the Mosul involves everybody bringing four bottles of wine in a backpack, and you walk five miles to another village to go to a bar to eat and drink and come back. At, I, I'll tell you, there are 70 and 80-year-olds in that village that can outwalk me. Yeah. Just because they've been walking in 60-degree slopes all their lives. Yeah. Yeah, it's that culture that 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 we're lacking, right? The the walking culture. Um, how how you know talking about wine and food, uh, you kind of put uh, mentioned some some bits. Uh, anything that 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 um, you know is is Oregon having a kind of a, a cuisine or something that can define itself? And do your wines fit into that, or um, is it just like you know? Do you abide by the um, drink what you like, eat what you like sort yeah, of deal? Yeah. But I'll tell you right now, um, I love Oregon food. I mean, Dungeness crab, yeah. salmon, I'd say the two best things. But right now, I'm just eating as much crawfish as I can. I learned it in Texas, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and it's great with wine, yeah. even better with beer. <laughs> I love it. We're uh, talking with Barnaby Tuttle from Teutonic Wine Company. Um, hey, we've got a few minutes left. Um, can we uh, can we try to convince you to take out the tuba? Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's put a pause on this and uh, and hear some uh, some announcements, and we'll be right back with Barnaby Tuttle. All right, we're back with Barnaby Tuttle from Teutonic Wine Company. Uh, we'll have to save the the music for another time, um, but let's talk about uh, because music is such an important part of the winery now, and you're actually doing interesting things with 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 the experiential music and wine together. Um, so so let's you know what what is going on at the winery uh, right now and incorporating music. We are doing live jazz twice a week. Yeah. And that exploration began when we were preparing to open our tavern. I built a 1970s stereo, you know, the best we could with our money, which meant 
you know, I recapacitor to my JBL 4312s, put the titanium tweeters. We have a Sansui 7900. And it was just really fun to explore music. And music has really been turned to wallpaper. People are listening to a really, really compressed, listening to greatest hits. So they hear the same three songs by the same artist. And we wanted to provide analog music in a way where we wouldn't play greatest hits. We'd play the album the way the artist intended. And as the stereo got better and better, I realized there was another way I could make it sound better. And in, in Oregon, marijuana is legal. So I went to the store and, and I said, hey, you know, I'm this older guy. I haven't done this in 25 years, but we're having some friends over for dinner. And it was an eye opener. And you don't need to smoke marijuana to do this. Just lock your parking brake, slow down, take a deep breath, listen to music. It doesn't have to be vinyl. But we're talking till 2.30 in the morning. Nobody's looking at their phone. And I'm like, wow, sitting on a couch between speakers. This is how my parents lived. And anyway, so we packed it up, wine reopened, and we're listening to vinyl. And because of this mentality, we started listening to more and more jazz, especially the Blue Note, the Van Gelder recorded. It just sounds, it sounds amazing. Yeah. And all of us in this community, we're getting more and more into jazz. Trust me, I'm still a regular guy. I like metal and punk and classic rock, but there's room for everything. And as we became more embracing the jazz scene, we finally reached out to this guy, Alan Jones, who has the Alan Jones Academy of Music. They needed a home venue. And it just was a perfect marriage. And we became their home venue. And there's suddenly there's all this music. And I don't see that as a separation from the wine. I think, you know, there's an art in how we live our lives, how we treat people, how we craft. And I think, you know, if I could give a message to people, it doesn't matter if you're a winemaker or you work at a bank or you work at a restaurant, how you treat people, the pride you take in what you make really defines who we are. It, you know, and if you look back several generations ago, I think there's a lot of bad things in the world that would stress us out, but we really should go back to craft and just really having a vibrancy for how we live our lives. And, and so that really, it really took us over. And because of all these jazz guys hanging around and I, I finally popped and went out and bought a tuba. <laughs> And you and uh, and is like the New Orleans scene kind of right up your alley, Rebirth and all those guys. Oh, I love Rebirth. Like, in fact, my fantasy band is um, taking components of Rebirth and mixing it with Krautrock. It you know when you don't have talent, you have to rely on concept. <laughs> and so maybe tuba, bass, drums, and analog synth. It's awesome. Well, Rebirth actually played my wedding, but that's a that's Are you a, that's a, uh, that's no a longer story. Yeah. Am I good at not cussing in the radio? <laughs> that was awesome. Keep catching totally. myself. <laughs> well, and and then the the marijuana piece is such an interesting thing to that because people in the industry are you know we've got a few more minutes uh, on this, but people in the industry are like, well, you know, marijuana is going to eclipse or take something away from from the wine industry, but. Not at all. Not at all. I think a lot of people now, I'm not doing it after profess publicly, truthfully, but people are definitely doing uh, macerating marijuana and wine, uh, CBD, but I'm definitely a big advocate for legalization. I don't smoke it every day. And I, I think it's like anything else you do. If you do it with intent and purpose and you're thinking clearly about it, it, I think it's fine. And I would speculate it's put about a billion dollars into the Oregon economy 
from taxation directly it's about 350 million but indirect by employment people being paying their taxes getting the mafia the cartels out of the business yeah and there hasn't been any problems associated with it i mean come on yeah. everybody even here I smell it every night. <laughs> and 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 not taking away from anything else. It's just no. legitimizing everything. Yeah, but like anything else, they legalize alcohol. That doesn't mean, you, you know, go buy a bottle and start drinking at six in the morning. Right. Or drinking and driving. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the vineyard side, any do you see anything where vineyards are being... Because I know that in, in Mendocino County, it's kind of a problem with uh, vineyard workers versus, you know, going into the, the marijuana industry, et cetera. It'll all find its equilibrium. Yeah. I've heard stories that now there's an oversaturation of pot in Oregon that sometimes a wholesale price drops to $150 a pound and it costs $250 a pound to grow it. So I think that we've hit peak. It will, it will not take away from vineyards. But conversely, there is at one time, especially when it was illegal, it was such a valuable crop. People were studying and researching a lot of how to maintain the weed. And there's been crossover into the wine business as far as viticulture that we've learned from these guys. So, you know, there's a little bit of a symbiosis in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll keep uh, seeing how it develops. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for, for where, where Oregon has taken us on that front. Yeah. Barnaby Tuttle, thank you so much for coming in the co-op studios. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll, we'll play the tuba next time. All right. Yeah. You, you'll have some time to practice and we'll get you in. Right on. Okay. Barnaby Tuttle from Teutonic Wine Company. You can find more information at teutonicwines.com.